You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Well, good morning, Covenant Hope. If you have a Bible, grab one and turn to Genesis uh, 33. Guess my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open uh, the scriptures for us regularly and absolutely love to do so. We're going to continue in our series through the book of Genesis, which we have titled God's Story of Creation to restoration. If you are a guest today, we normally walk through books of the Bible together because we want to know what God has to say and understand and how we should live in light of his word. If you do not have a Bible, uh, there should be a black hardcover Bible in the pew back in front of you. You can turn to page 27 to follow along with us. If you don't have a Bible, please take that one home with you. We would love for you to have that as a gift uh, from us. As most of you know, uh, my boys are now uh, almost four and uh, one and a half. And uh, now that Connor is mobile and able to run around, uh, he likes to take toys uh, that Graham is playing with. And what we've learned is that, you know, when they're behind the couch and you can't see them, uh, when Connor wants something, he just starts to whine. He just starts to cry because he thinks in his mind that mommy and dad are going to come and get that toy from older brother. We're going to give it back to, to him. And so we are now seeing this conflict arise uh, between our two boys. And Ashley, you know, being uh, the sweet mother she is, she said, is there any way uh, we can stop them from fighting for the next 20 years? And I said, absolutely not. Let me, let me give you a story. I said, you know, when my brother and I were fighting, I broke a pool stick over his head. And so if we keep them from that, we're doing okay. Conflict between brothers, uh, some of you have uh, or sisters either way, but particularly brothers have a way in which they have conflict. They get into it. They, they fight together. That is just what happens. And thankfully, I, I do love uh, my brother uh, now, uh, you know, 30 years removed from when we were younger and able to enjoy that. But there is conflict that arises. And we now uh, step back into, we're going to finish the story today of Jacob and Esau, maybe the, one of uh, the most conflict between brothers in the whole Bible, especially prolonged uh, course of time. And so as we look here in the passage, here's what we're going to see this morning. Jacob prostrates himself before Esau, but Esau forgives Jacob as a brother before they separate in peace. Now, if you're a believer today, if you follow Jesus, you've given your life to him in faith, what are we to do today? What are we to know uh, today? May the gracious act of reconciliation cause us to worship God and live accordingly. May the gracious act of reconciliation cause us to worship God and live accordingly. What a real quick uh, recap. We've been in the story of Jacob and Esau since uh, for the last two months, actually. Uh, we, it started back in chapter 25 with their births. And we even see there in the birth story that when they're born, they're twins. And Jacob is grasping Esau's heel when they come out of the womb. That's how they get their names. We also know uh, in chapter 25 that Jacob cons Esau out of his birthright. And he waits for the right time, and he set him up when he was hungry coming out of the field, and he, he stole his birthright. Really, Esau gave it away, but it was in that moment that Jacob began to, to manipulate Esau. 
And it ramps up. We get to chapter 27 and Jacob now steals the blessing. He, he deceives his father and steals the blessing of the firstborn. And now he is the one who will continue the line. And now there's been 20 plus years that has separated Jacob and Esau. Jacob went to be with Laban and his mother thought, Rebecca thought it would just be for a few days, a couple weeks. But now it's been 20 plus years and now they're about to, to see each other again. And while Jacob was gone, God called him back to the promised land, back to the land of Canaan, because this is God's plan for restoration, not just for his family, not just for him and his brother, but for the whole world. And you see, the return to the land was neither easy nor uncomplicated. Last week we saw Jacob wrestle with God. And now he will have to confront his brother. So this morning, I want to show you, I think the passage shows us three aspects of reconciliation in our passage that help us consider a, a gracious but also surprising act of forgiveness. A surprising act of reconciliation. So our first aspect this morning, th there's a promise of reconciliation, this promise of reconciliation. Look back there at verse 1. I'm going to walk through the story quickly, give us some commentary, and provide a few thoughts. Verse 1, now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming, and so he, he sees him coming. He knows he's got 400 men, and he divides the children, and he puts his wives uh, in, in, in order. Now, they're listed in the, in the order that he was married to them, but he, he puts them in order of his affection. He, he puts he puts the, the, the servants first, and then he puts Leah, and then he puts Rachel. And so Jacob already, he's, even though that God has promised him he'll be with him, Jacob does some things here that's not helpful to his family. Look at verse 2. As, he, as I said, he put the, the, the servants and their children first. Leah is still unloved by Jacob, and this is going to continue to call, cause multiple issues. And Rachel and Joseph are last Joseph will be that favorite son that we will continue to look at uh, as we walk through the book of Genesis. But it's a, it's a note. It's the coming conflict of the family. Verse 3, he himself went on ahead and bowed to the ground seven times until he approached his brother. Jacob literally prostrates himself. He humbles his full body under his brother. He wants his brother to know he's coming humbly to receive his Hopefully, his willingness to, to come back into the land. But look at how Esau responds in verse 4. Look at these five rapid actions that take place. But Esau ran to meet him, hugged him, threw his arms around him, kissed him, and they wept. Moses is highlighting the fact that Jacob had wrestled with God and had been prepared to, to be embraced by his brother Esau. Jacob has received a warm welcome, one that he was not expecting. And this welcome shows a surprising act of reconciliation and forgiveness. And notice that last action, they both wept. You can imagine the pent-up emotion in this moment when they embrace each other and they cry together. Think of all the the hurt and the anger and the fear and the regret and the sorrow. And it just comes out in this moment. It comes out in this warm embrace. 
Verse 5, when Esau looked up and saw the, the women and children, he asked, who are these with you? Right, remember Jacob had nothing when he left the land of Canaan. He had a staff. He had nothing, no children, no possessions. And Esau looks up and says, who are these people with you? He answered, the children God has graciously given to me. Grace is an important word here in our passage this morning. It's an important theme that God's grace is what's now initiated this reconciliation. Verse 6, then the servants and their children approached him and bowed down. Leah and her children also approached and bowed down. And then Joseph and Rachel approached and bowed down. Jacob tells of God's blessing and his grace. The children did not come from any uh, sort of means or effort by Jacob. This was all something God did. In verse 8, Esau said, what do you mean by this whole procession I met? So Esau's asking about the gift of the livestock. He knew it was a gift. And Jacob says, to find favor with you, my Lord, he answered. But Jacob, he, what he wants, he wants to try to, to pressure Esau into receiving him back. He wants the reconciliation to be secured. He wants him to take the gift. Look at verse 9. I have enough, my brother, Esau said. Keep what you have. Now, God must have been gracious to Esau during these 20 years. But Jacob said, no, please, if I find favor with you, that word means grace. Literally, Jacob says, if, I, if you have any grace for me, please take this gift. For indeed, I have seen your face, and it is like seeing God's face, since you have accepted me. Please take my present that was brought to you, because God has been gracious to me, and I have everything I need. So Jacob urged him until he accepted. Now, although the family and the possessions are an act of God's gracious blessing, Jacob wanted Esau's favor. He wanted his grace as well. And so this grace is secured by this reconciliation. But instead, since Esau had already forgiven Jacob, he had already embraced him as a brother, did not need the present, Jacob now asked him to keep the gift. And so he, as a, a way to show gratitude, please just keep this gift for me. Jacob was not convinced that the reconciliation was sure. And Jacob wanted to know, although he had been blessed by God, had been given grace by God, he wanted his brother to forgive him. And he wanted to make sure that they were on solid terms. This gift was a way of sharing God's blessing with Esau. It was a way of making amends for all the things he did over the last 20 years. And Esau's act of forgiveness was like an act that God had actually forgiven Jacob. That when Jacob had wrestled with God just in the previous chapter, it was almost like J Jacob says, now that you've forgiven me, it's like I have seen God again. And now we move into kind of the second half of the chapter and before we start, I want to make one quick note. We don't have time to, to dive into this, but I think it's important to say reconciliation doesn't demand communal living. Reconciliation doesn't demand communal living. Jacob knows that most likely that they're going to butt heads at some point. And so Jacob knows it's okay. They can be reconciled and not live together. So look at verse 12. Then Esau said, let's move on. I'll go ahead of you. Jacob replied, my Lord. Again, he's Jacob is treating Esau like like a superior. He's not treating him like a brother. My Lord knows that the children are weak and I have nursing flocks and herds. If, if they are driven hard for one more day, the whole herd will die. Let my Lord go ahead of his servant. I will continue on slowly at the pace suited to the livestock and the children. And I will come to my Lord at 
See, here, for some reason, Jacob wants to make up this reason for not coming along. He should have just said, hey, it's okay. I'm so thankful that we're reconciled. I'm going to go where the Lord has called me to go, and we will settle in different places, but I am glad we are reconciled. Verse 15, Esau said, let me leave you some of my people with you. But he replied, why do that? Please indulge me, my Lord Jacob is trying to say to Esau that although they do not live together, their relationship has been renewed. It would be enough simply if Esau acknowledged that he was his brother and the bond has now been restored. Verse 16, that day Esau started on his way back to Seir, but Jacob went to Succoth. He built a house for himself and shelters for his livestock. That is why the place was called Succoth. Now, Succoth literally means shelters or stalls. Think lean-tos. These are sheds that Jacob built, but they were permanent in the sense that this is where they're going to live. And Jacob now has a place to live. Verse 18, and Jacob came from Pada Aram. He arrived safely at Shechem in the land of Canaan and camped in front of the city. He purchased a section of the field where he had pitched his tent from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father. For a hundred pieces of silver. Moses is highlighting the permanent nature of Jacob's actions. He will now live in the promised land. It is solid structures. They will be able to provide for themselves. This is a long time move. A long time traveler has now settled down in the promised land. And look at verse 20. When it's all said and done, he's been reconciled, he's bought land, he's now built shelters to live in for his family, and he set up an altar there and called it God, the God of Israel. So Jacob built an altar and named it, it's God who helps and keeps his promises is the God of Israel. So at this altar, what Jacob is saying is, I will remember every time I pass by this altar, every time I come to sacrifice at this altar, I will remember the God. The God who is with Israel. And this proclaims the relationship and confirms the promise that God made at Bethel just in chapter 28. And so now Jacob, he, he settles down and we will wait for God to continue his plan of restoration. But this story declares to us that reconciliation is actually possible. Do you actually believe that reconciliation is possible? That forgiveness is actually offered. But it is. Especially when God's involved. May we hold on to this promise of reconciliation because our God is a forgiving God. And so we see that first aspect, the promise of reconciliation. But we also see the second aspect. We see the second aspect. The preparation to receive the gospel. Preparation to receive the gospel. Now, if we take this story in this chapter in the larger story of the Bible of, of Jacob and Esau, they've been at odds their whole life. It is clear that this story is about the work of God to reconcile enemies and to keep his promises. Reconciliation is a work of God. And why is that? Because our God is fully committed to rescuing our fallen world through Israel, Jacob, and then the people of Israel. Thereby keeping his promise to Eve, to Abraham, and to Isaac. God will keep his promises. So much so that he will reconcile even the worst of enemies. And when we take a step back and we see this reconciliation between man, it's only possible that humanity can be restored or reconciled when they've been reconciled to God. 
Jacob had experienced the grace of God in multiple ways. God shows up to him before he gets to to Laban and promises him, I am with you. And out of that promise, it is God who gave Jacob children. If you remember back to the story, it wasn't the mandrakes. It wasn't this special stuff. It was God. It was God who gave them possessions of livestock. It wasn't Jacob using sticks or whatever it was. It was God who gave him these livestock. Jacob had received the blessing and the grace of God. And then just last week, it was God who granted Jacob life after seeing him face to face. Our God is a gracious God. This is why he is willing to forgive us and willing to be reconciled to us. But you see, Esau here is a picture of the gospel. In Esau, we see a true and surprising forgiveness. This forgiveness wasn't bought or bargained for. Esau forgave Jacob before, wholeheartedly forgave him without any of the gifts. Without any hesitation, he embraced his brother when he saw him again. In Esau, Jacob saw for a second time in two days the face of God. That he was accepted based on forgiveness without merit on Jacob's part. And Jacob had sent that gift ahead of him, right? Hoping to restore peace. Hoping that he would receive forgiveness from Esau. But remember, grace is at the center of this story. Verse 5, God is graciously given. Verse 8, these words, favor. Can I find favor or grace between Esau and Jacob? But we have to understand, if Esau is, was going to accept the gift, that would automatically obligate him to forgive Jacob. So think about that for just a moment. If he takes the gift from Jacob, he has to forgive his brother. Instead, he says, I'm not receiving that gift. I'm not receiving that gift because I've already forgiven you. I don't need your gift. It's not good enough. But I will forgive you anyways. Church, you see, we cannot give God enough to forgive us. He is ultimately gracious to us even though we do not deserve it. This is what grace actually is. Now I'm going to put a slide up on the screen for you. I want you to remember this. This is what grace is. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense expense. It's just an acronym to help you understand what grace is. It's you getting what you don't deserve, that God would lavish on you the riches of Jesus Christ. He would give that to you willingly because he loves you, because he is a God who wants to be reconciled. Jacob's gifts were like the sacrifices of Israel, that they are there to appease God's wrath, but that's not why he accepts them. God does not receive the sacrifices of Israel just for no apparent reason. He does it because he is willing to be reconciled. He's willing to forgive. It's because he has a relationship with Israel. We cannot buy our forgiveness. God is ready and willing to forgive us. And this story, even through Esau, shows us, it prepares us to receive the gospel story. You see, we know that the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are fulfilled truly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true offspring. He's the true son. He's the true Israel who walked by faith, who trusted God's promises, even all the way to death. That's who 
our God is. Jesus is the one who crushed the serpent, who did not sin, who did not deceive, who did not fall. He is the one who crushed the head of the serpent by living a perfect life and giving himself on the cross. Jesus is the one whom the nations can be blessed by. Because in Jesus, those who walk by faith from any nation are the true offspring of Abraham. Paul talks about this in Galatians. In the end, the promised land is fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth that God has already purchased. He's al- he already has a plot. He already has our new home. He will dwell with us permanently. Jacob could know permanence in the land, but he could not know God's permanent presence. You see, it foreshadows, it looks towards a day in which God will once again dwell with his people. And we know that is when Jesus comes back, all of us will dwell with him. But the thing is, for God's people to arrive safely in the new heavens and the new earth, that is to be with God, it requires a surprising and gracious act of reconciliation. God is the one who ran after you. God is the one who ran after you in your sin. God's the one who ran after me. God is the one who was ready to forgive you even when you didn't even know he was there. This story shows us what kind of God we trust in. God stopped at nothing to reconcile himself to you. He even sent his one and only son to secure that reconciliation. Consider consider the parable of the prodigal son for just a moment. We were in it just a few months ago. That that the father sees his son who has squandered everything, who, who basically said, Father, I wish you would die so I could have your money. And he goes and takes it and does whatever he wants with it. And he returns home in his sin, embarrassed. And the father sees him from a long way out before the son could even know it. And he runs. And he embraces his son. And he brings out a coat and puts it around him and he kills his best cow and they have a feast. That's what God has done for you. That God has ran after you because he is willing to graciously forgive you. He is willing to show us a surprising act of reconciliation. Church, how often do you think about how gracious, about how surprising this act of reconciliation actually is? We didn't just cheat, cheat God one time. All right, we, didn't, we didn't just deceive him once, right? Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our sins. Children under wrath. Romans 1 says that we were against him. His enemies. Romans 5. Even though we were his enemies. It wasn't just one time. God was willing to be reconciled to us who either one, didn't care that he was there, or two, hated the thought of it. Our God stopped at nothing to forgive us. If we're really honest, may we never get over this fact. It's so easy for us to not think in these terms, but if we would ponder how wonderful, how gracious, how surprising this act of forgiveness actually is, would that not shape everything we do? Would that not shape the kind of people we should be? You see, this story prepares us for the gospel. It prepares us to receive it. It tells us of the most surprising act of forgiveness ever told. But the story also now, it brings us to our third aspect. It provides the proper response. 
there's a proper response here. That those who know this kind of reconciliation, that they live a certain way. You see, you are offered this gracious, surprising reconciliation today. If you don't know Jesus this morning, this offer is for you. I don't want you to leave. If you know nothing else, you can know the gracious love of God who in himself sent his own son to die for you. You can experience true, lasting, even surprising forgiveness. I want you to know that you can receive this forgiveness. There's nothing that you have done that can keep God from offering this to you. He's already offered it. He has done everything necessary to bring you back to himself, to reconcile you to himself. You don't have to keep waiting. You don't have to, you don't have to wait until a worship gathering's over here. Here's all you need to do. Confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, that he is able to save you from your sin and that he is your savior. If you confess that, you will be saved. Paul says it in Romans 10, 9. But if you do know Jesus today, if you are a follower of Christ, you now are responsible to live in light of that. But for those who don't believe in Christ, those who have not received this forgiveness, there's this misunderstanding, there's this misconception about how forgiveness actually works. Remember, Jacob tried to give this gift to Esau. He tried to buy his forgiveness. He tried to make sure his forgiveness was settled. He was hoping for mercy. And people often think they can do the same thing with God. They think they can buy their way back. How? By being good. Well, God, I know that I, I know I screwed this up, but look, look, I've, I've done really good today. And so we try, to, we try to get in God's good graces, but we actually can't. We cannot get in God's good graces. Look at all the things I have done now, but they will not be able to add up. Because even that one sin, that one tiny sin has separated you from God. And unfortunately, no amount of good deeds, no amount of sincerity can please God. We must have an answer for our sin, and that answer is only from Him. The only gift that, that appeases God's wrath is Jesus Christ. And that's what's so surprising about it, that God would actually go to every length possible to save us, to forgive us. And church, if you have accepted Jesus Christ, meaning you've submitted your life to Him as your Savior, you can have full assurance of this forgiveness. Full assurance of this forgiveness. That you don't have to worry. You don't have to be like Jacob, like, hey, Esau, please, please take this gift so that I know this is, this is a done deal. No, church, we can be secured in knowing that our forgiveness is through Christ and that it will never be taken away because it's God who has done this for us. Now, people who have experienced a surprising and gracious act of forgiveness should be also quick to forgive. Think of Esau. He ran to Jacob. He was eager to forgive. It's a beautiful picture of how we should treat other people, that we should be willing to forgive anyone who may hurt us, who has sinned against us. I remember Jacob saw the face of God the night before, and he also saw the face of God even in Esau's act of forgiveness. Church, do you know that 
that people can see the face of God through you when you respond by forgiving them. Even when you have been hurt. I heard it said that forgiveness is like a bomb to the soul. It spreads quickly and it works very fast. But when we hold on to, to, un, to unforgiveness and we, we become bitter and it begins to seep into our, our whole being. But forgiveness is that antidote to a life that can be lived with joy because we've experienced that joy. But there's also the other side of it. Forgiveness shapes our Christian community. It shapes our very church. It, it makes us into the kind of people God wants us to be. Forgiveness is one of the most powerful things that takes place in the life of our church. It demonstrates the gospel like nothing else. It displays a commitment to Jesus and to the church like nothing else. Think about these commands. There's two verses here that, that I, that I want to I show you. I want you to see here in the Bible. The first one is Colossians 3, verse 13. I'm going to read from verse 12. Should be on the screen for you. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Why? Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are to also forgive. We forgive because we have been forgiven much. Ephesians 4, 32. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Why do you think the Lord, through the Apostle Paul, gave these commands? Because he knows that the Christian life is messy. He knows it's not perfect. Right? We are not perfect. That means we will eventually hurt one another. At some point in time, whether it's big or small, and you see, I, I know that from experience. I think probably most of you know that from experience. I know that the Christian life is messy. Here's why. Because I'm very difficult to deal with. I'm hard to deal with. I'm the one that can hurt others. And so I think if I can hurt other people, I would be willing to bet that you are too. But even in the midst of that, God has empowered us to be able to forgive one another and hold the gospel high and hold each other high and walk together in a renewed relationship. That's what God has done. That's what God is doing in our church. And while I'm thankful that we don't see a, a ton of hurt, but there are things that happen from time to time. And may we seek forgiveness because we have been forgiven. You see, church, a spirit of unforgiveness will kill a church family. It will kill a church family. We must fight tooth and nail to prevent this kind of spirit. Think of the unforgiving servant. It's a parable that Jesus gives, and it's a servant who has this uncalculable debt. I mean, you know, when you, you type in all the numbers and you hit multiply by like 500, and, and it says like E squared or something, all the math people in the room know what that means. I don't know what that means. And so it's like, you can't see it on the calculator. That's what this guy's debt was. And the king forgives him. He says, I'm going to forgive your debt. And what does that guy go do? He goes, finds a dude that owes him like $7 and shakes him down for it. He clearly missed what forgiveness was all about. And church, our debt 
couldn't have been read on a calculator. It was so extravagant. But we now get to offer that forgiveness to other people. And we must do that. Because we are God's people demonstrating this surprising act of reconciliation. How do we do that? We forgive. We forgive. We forgive and we do it some more. And we'll watch it transform the life of our church and our lives and the lives of people who watch us and the people who interact with us. It will transform anyone who experiences forgiveness. Why do we forgive? Because God has forgiven us. These commands are grounded in this truth. That we have received forgiveness. May we not be like that unforgiving servant. May we be willing quickly to forgive. To show the gospel. To show how surprising it is. To show how wonderful it actually is. But don't miss here. We notice here at the end of the story. When Jacob, he gets to Succoth, he gets to Shechem, and he buys the land, what does he do? He built an altar. He builds an altar. And what, and what does that signal to us? It signals that Jacob is worshiping God. Now, let me just remind you, when God showed up to Abraham, Abraham literally built an altar in the same chapter. It's been 20 years for Jacob. 20 years. That's how long it took Jacob to build an altar. For some of you, it has taken that long for God to wrestle your heart into submission. It's taken that long for you to realize just at what lengths God has gone to to save you. Some of you have amazing testimonies in which God has done the amazing work of forgiving you. And some of us in the room have known God for a long time, have, don't have really spectacular testimonies, but that's okay. We have both Abraham and Jacob. Both of those individuals can worship God and should worship God. Our God will do whatever it takes. He will do whatever it takes to reach us, to call us out of our sin, and to forgive us. Church, we must truly worship God because he has truly forgiven us. Maybe more than anything else, forgiveness fuels a life of worship. Forgiveness fuels a life of worship. And so think about it. Ponder it. Consider it. Write Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 on your mirrors in the morning. And when we look and remember that God has forgiven you. Is, is forgiveness not the reason we're all here? That we, we, we can walk through these doors and we can worship together because our God has forgiven us. That there's no penalty, there, there's no take backs, there's nothing that we can fear because God has stamped his approval on us because of Jesus. We've been forgiven. And church, let me just be really honest. Unforgiveness will hinder your ability to worship it will hinder your ability to worship. But when we acknowledge our own forgiveness, when we think about it, when we ponder it, it helps us forgive. And when we forgive, it helps us worship God. It helps us give everything to Him. Church, true forgiveness can only be found in Jesus. I, my, my prayer for you today is 
is that you don't think about just how you can forgive, although please do, but you must consider the fact that Jesus is the only way to real forgiveness, to true and lasting forgiveness. And if you don't know him today, if you've not accepted him as your savior, if you've not bowed your knee to him, you don't have that assurance. I don't say that to you to scare you in any way, but rather to call you out of that and to trust him and submit to him and receive that forgiveness. He's offering it to you. He's offering that to you today. Will you trust him? Pray with me. Oh God in heaven, what a surprising act of reconciliation that we have today. God, what a a marvelous thought that we have that our God, an infinite God, the creator of all things, who we sinned against, would forgive us. And not only would you forgive us, you made it possible. God, would we think on these things? Would we consider the forgiveness in the gospel? Would we, we consider how great our Lord is? And we consider how great your love is for us that now we are a part of the family. God, we need you. I know that there are difficult situations even now, even this morning, where we're being tempted to not forgive. Where we're being tempted to hold on and to be bitter. But God, would you help us Forgive because we have been forgiven by you. God, we need you and we love you and we confess all these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of his spirit. Amen.